Well, good morning. Our gospel reading is a familiar one to many of us. Uh, this episode in Luke's gospel is forever seared into the minds of many through a children's song, and you may know it. It goes something along these lines. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Okay, good. We're all on the same page. Children love this story. They love it because they can identify in part with Zacchaeus' small stature, which at that time and age, everything seems to be somewhat obscured by adults and larger things in them. Their view is blocked. And also they love this story because climbing trees just makes for a better story. And it's such fun. Yet adults can also relate to Zacchaeus And we can do so along with children in ways that go deeper than physical stature or climbing trees. And the thing that stands out in this passage, in Luke chapter 19, is what is not permitted a lasting presence. It's what is not permitted a lasting presence, and that is shame. Look with me at Luke 19, verses 1 through 7. And the way Zacchaeus is characterized by Luke and by the crowd that is following Jesus. In verses 1 and 2, Luke characterizes Zacchaeus in three ways, really quickly. One, he gives his name, Zacchaeus. That's a Greek pronunciation of a Hebrew name, Zacchaeus. That tells us something about him. This is a Jewish man, maybe a Hellenized Jew, maybe trained in a gymnasium, a school that taught them a Greek way of thinking. He's also characterized as a chief tax collector. Zacchaeus worked in one of the most reviled and hated professions under Roman occupation. One of the Jews just hated these tax collectors because they were seen as collaborators with Rome. And not only that, Zacchaeus is the chief tax collector for this region. And then finally, Luke describes him as a rich man. Zacchaeus was wealthy. Tax collectors were well known for charging exorbitant fees above and beyond the Roman tax to line their own pockets with. And as the chief tax collector overseeing other tax collectors, you can just imagine the wealth that he was able to amass. Now Luke's not the only one here in this passage that characterizes Zacchaeus. In verse 7, the crowds also who are following Jesus further characterize him as a sinner. They're upset that Jesus has invited himself over to his home, that he would even go in to be with him. And they characterize Zacchaeus as a sinner. And he is no doubt viewed as a sinner because, one, he was seen as a collaborator with the Romans, this unclean Gentile army occupying and defiling the land of God that he had given to these people, to the Jews. And two, two, because this wealth that he had gained was likely from exploiting his fellow Jews his brothers and sisters. And we just heard, Cornell just read, what God's view that would have shaped Israel's view of leaders that were manipulating and oppressing and exploiting the people there in Isaiah chapter 1. That's the characterization of Isaiah. And so at some level, Zacchaeus, no doubt, with all this going on, no doubt felt shame. If you've seen it all, season one of The Chosen, uh, that's uh, kind of uh, the series that's going on, showing the life of Jesus uh, it's really great. I recommend that you watch it. If you've seen season one, you kind of can get the sense of this with the character of Matthew, who's a tax collector, 
wealthy, but he's also ostracized by everyone around him. No doubt Zacchaeus, ostracized though wealthy, felt shame. Now he may have hidden it behind his contempt for his fellow Jews who despised him, but shame is palpable under the surface of this episode. The crowd despised him and refused to give way for him to see Jesus. To this crowd, Zacchaeus was not someone worthy of a place of honor or dignity. He was to be excluded, to be nudged out of view, to be shamed. And maybe we might say rightfully so, but he was nonetheless shamed. And I think to some extent we can all identify with his shame because shame is something we all experience at some level, some of us more consciously than others. We feel shame stemming from our sinful thoughts and behavior or from our perceived inadequacies or from the sin-filled words or actions of others against us. Often abuse victims feel shame at what has been done to them, perpetrated against them. Indeed, to be human in a broken world east of Eden is to experience shame, is to be infected with this phenomenon that we call shame. But what is it? How does it work? Where does it come from? And I think more, more to the point for us, how do we overcome it? Well, in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3, these chapters provide for us the origin story for shame. In Genesis 2, verse 18, God looks at Adam and notes that it's not good for him to be alone. You remember this passage? It's not good for Adam to be an isolated individual because God's design for us, for human beings, is that we find wholeness, completion, in community, in communion with God and with one another. And this is what marriage between one biological man and one biological woman symbolizes and embodies in this creation. So then God creates from the side of Adam, this is following, picking back the story, God creates from the side of Adam a woman named Eve, and Adam and Eve become husband and wife. They cling to one another and they become one flesh. And then Genesis 2.25 sums it all up in this way. The man and his wife were both naked and without shame. They were both naked and without shame. Of all the possible ways to sum up the bringing together of man and woman, of husband and wife, the author chose naked and without shame. Not naked and without fear, not naked and really happy, not naked and confident, not naked and cold, or naked and sunburned, or whatever we might think, but naked and without shame. That's significant. You see, nakedness speaks to our God-created vulnerability as individual human beings. Our God-created vulnerability as individual human beings. That's why God says it's not good for you to be alone. Yet vulnerability is not a problem when there is unity and communion, when there is unity and communion with God and others. The God-created answer for our vulnerability. But we know how the story goes there in Genesis 2 and 3. The crafty serpent, and the word for crafty is a wordplay off of the word for naked. And so this crafty serpent is going to be striking right at the heart of this nakedness without shame. So this crafty serpent leads Eve and Adam to rebel against God by eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We know this story. Immediately after they eat, Genesis 3, verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. 
It doesn't say anything else there. And then it follows, and they sewed fig leaves. And together, and they made themselves loincloths. And at this moment, in the biblical narrative, in the story of our world, shame enters the story as the chief agent of the evil one that seeks to keep us separated from God and from one another. You see, sin separates us from God and one another, but shame lies to us. It tells us a lie. It claims that there is no way back to communion with God. There is no way back to communion with one another. Shame tells us that we could never possibly be known or loved again if someone really knew. Adam and Eve are now naked and ashamed. They are, in a very profound sense, isolated and alone, though they are right beside one another, hiding in their shame from God and hiding in their shame from the one beside them. You see, shame opens their eyes and turns their gaze inward on themselves to their own vulnerability, while at the same time cutting them off from God's intended answer to human vulnerability That is intimate, personal communion with God and with one another. Shame tells us that God and others are no longer the God-given answer, no longer the God-given answer to our aloneness, but rather threats. Threats. And Adam and Eve respond to each other as threats by clothing themselves. You see, clothing is that first line of defense that we place on ourselves to protect us from others. Because now we're so so wrapped up with ourselves, so turned in on ourselves that we see and we're seeking to guard ourselves in whatever way, guarded, hide. We see others as threats, and so we clothe ourselves. Shame is primarily an emotion that undermines us. By eroding in our relationships with God and others, our felt sense of connection and safety. Upon hearing God walking in the garden during the cool part of the day, Adam and Eve do what? We know the story? You tell me. What do they do? They hide. They're ashamed. And their shame cuts them off from God by telling them that He won't forgive. That He won't love us anymore. We're broken beyond repair. We're not good enough. We're not pure enough. We're utterly and completely ruined and beyond His desire or ability to love and restore. That's the lie that Shame tells us. That's the lie it has been telling us since Adam and Eve. And so we can relate to the shame that is present in Zacchaeus' life as one labeled sinner and excluded from the covenant family, which meant that he was separated from communion with God and from his fellow Jews. He was separated from the means of grace available to him at that time as an Israelite. In the midst of Zacchaeus' story, shame is present, weaving together an untrue story told by the crowd and even by Zacchaeus himself. This untrue story is that because of his sin, there is no possible redemption. There is no way back to communion with God and with his people. And many of us right now may be struggling with shame in some way whether it's the result of our own sinful thoughts or behavior, our own perceived inadequacies, or because of the sin that someone else has perpetrated against us or wounded us with their words. And this shame is at work weaving together a lie that there is no hope for you. 
There's no hope for you to be forgiven or known or loved ever again. Yet in the midst of this false story that shame tells, and which seems so real and so undeniable to us, we hear maybe ever so faintly God walking. We hear God pursuing us. Zacchaeus heard God pursuing him in the reports about a man named Jesus who was proclaiming God's welcome to sinners, to the shamed, to the outcast, to the poor, to the blind, to the rich, even to the tax collector. Remember there, just the chapter before the one we're in, we have that image of a Pharisee and a tax collector praying before God. And the tax collector is the one shown to be righteous because he's truly repentant. And so Zacchaeus, after hearing this report of this man and this message, this good news, Zacchaeus had to get a glimpse for himself. He had to go and see Jesus up close and personal. And because the crowd was excluding him from getting a glimpse, Zacchaeus did something utterly humiliating. Utterly humiliating for a grown man in the ancient world. He ran. This isn't battle. This isn't work. Men did not run just because they wanted to run. He ran and then he climbed a tree. He ran and he climbed a tree, utterly humiliated himself. And he did all this so that he might get a glimpse of Jesus. Yet as Zacchaeus sits in this tree, hoping that no one would see him, Jesus sees him. And Jesus addresses him in verse 5, inviting himself over to his home to share a meal. He says, Zacchaeus, hurry down, for I'm going to go to your house today. I'm coming over. I hope you have food ready. Always have food ready. You never know. Always have food ready. I think it's, it's even, he says it even more strongly than that. For I must stay at your house. Zacchaeus may have come out to see Jesus, but Jesus came through Jericho to be with Zacchaeus. He came to Jericho to be with Zacchaeus, just as God came to the garden in search of Adam and Eve that day so long ago. Where are you? And this morning, in the midst of our own shame and its lie that God would never, could never forgive or love someone like you or me, God comes to us in Jesus and through His Spirit saying, Where are you? I have come to be with you to dwell with you, even though I see you fully and know you completely. Even the darkest parts of you, I still come in search of you. For I have come to seek and to save you, the lost, the sinner, the shamed. Jesus is here this morning. Really do believe that. Believe that. He tells us, when two or three are gathered together in my name, we gather together in the name of Jesus, I will be in the midst of them. 
Jesus is here this morning, and he has come to share in table fellowship, just like he did with Zacchaeus. He has come to share in table fellowship with you and me, the sinner, the shamed. He has come as the good shepherd who seeks his lost sheep by breaking down those barriers that sin and shame construct and maintain to separate and hide us from him and from one another. And Jesus has broken down these barriers by taking upon himself all of our sin and all of our shame and crucifying both of them in his body on the cross. This is where the story leads that Luke is telling. This is where his gospel is taking us. It is taking us along with Jesus to Jerusalem, to the cross where Jesus will experience rejection and the deepest humiliation and shame possible. He will be stripped naked, exposed and vulnerable, bearing our sin and shame, and His Father will turn from Him, though only for a short while as He bears the sin and the shame that is ours. You see, we serve a God, and we submit our lives, each week at least here, in word, to a king who knows our shame. He knows what it feels like to have a father or mother or spouse turn their back on you. He knows what it is like to have your closest friends give up on you or betray you in the moment of your deepest struggle and need. He knows what it is like to feel abandoned and alone. He knows what it is to feel shame. So he knows our shame, and yet he still comes to save us. He still comes to be with us anyways. And like Zacchaeus, we have to risk humiliation. We have to risk being exposed. For it is only when Zacchaeus humbles himself and exposes his vulnerability, climbing that tree, that he is able to see Jesus. When Jesus comes pursuing us in the midst of the shame where we hide from Him and from one another, we have to risk exposing ourselves, coming out from behind our hiding places into the light of Christ's presence for that shame to be overcome. And in that light, and in that light where we are fully known, where we are fully exposed to the piercing gaze of Christ our Savior and our Creator, we must give voice to to our sin. We must give voice to our shame. You see, Zacchaeus stands and confesses to Jesus publicly in verse 8, the source of his shame. He has been hoarding wealth and defrauding others. And this is the most difficult thing for us to even conceive of doing in the midst of our shame because of the lie it keeps telling us. That if we were to really say what we struggle with, that sin or that thing that we're most ashamed of, if we were to really say that, the people that heard that would turn around and run away. But Zacchaeus' example invites us not only to expose ourselves to the, the light, the penetrating light of Jesus, but his example invites us also to give voice, to confess that which we have sinned and that which has caused us shame, naming it before God. And this practice of turning to God and to one another and naming the sin and naming the shame we struggle with 
That this is what truly leads to salvation and continual transformation. The continual transformation that God provides through His means of grace. And when we turn to Christ and step out from behind our hiding places into the light of His loving presence, when we do this by confessing our sin and naming our shame, by God's grace we enter again into intimate and personal communion with God through Jesus and by His Spirit. And He then does something so wonderful. He incorporates us now into His family, the church, a place where shame is not permitted a lasting presence. Having risked humiliation to see Jesus, and after publicly and vulnerably naming his sin and shame, Jesus reincorporates Zacchaeus into the family of God, into the family of Abraham. Today, he says in verse 10, salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. You see, the remedy for shame is not found in fame or shallow affirmation or insulating ourselves from others or from God. Rather, the remedy for shame is being incorporated by God into his family, a family with new and with different and more beautiful standards of honor, forgiveness, compassion, and love. A family where shame is not allowed to last. Because the one who binds us together is the one who transformed the utter shame and dishonor of the cross into ultimate honor and glory. And it is within this family, defined by the crucified Lamb, that we can overcome shame through honest and vulnerable confession to God and to His church. And it is here, in this family, where we experience the means of God's grace that transforms our lives. If you are not experiencing the transforming power of God in your life right now, might it be, might it be that you are hiding some part of your life from Him? That you are hiding in your shame, unwilling to risk exposure and unwilling to give it up? If you are, turn to God. He's already here. He loves you. He's come to see you, to save you. Confess to him. Name the shame. And if, for whatever reason, you want to speak about that, if you need to talk to someone, know that you can come to me. You can come to Father Ben. Come to Father David, Father Shane. We would be more than happy to hear that, to hear your confession for you to name your shame. We will not run away from you. And we would love to pronounce the forgiveness of God over you in the absolution. We would love to pronounce God's love so that you can hear it in a human voice that He loves you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.